All right, let's turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you grew up in church, you probably first got introduced to church cliques in youth group. Every single youth group that's ever existed has had some conversation around, you know, killing the cliques and overcoming the cliquish nature of typical youth groups. But we all grow up and grow out of that, and when you become adults, churches don't have those anymore, right? I wish that were true. I remember reading of one church years ago uh, in a rural logging community uh, that was divided literally down the, the center aisle. There was one faction that sat on one side and the other faction that sat on the other side. And the young pastor, I think it was in Leadership Magazine, was called to pastor this church and began to notice this division that you know this group really only did stuff together and this group only really did stuff together and he began to ask around like what, what's the root of this where did this come from and the younger people didn't really know it'd been like that so long they didn't have a clue and he began to talk to the older people and the story was it went back to two brothers who had an argument over a logging chain and one said he didn't return it you lost it the other one said he did and it was miss, missing and he wouldn't pay restitution and so these two brothers got mad and began to fight and their families and cousins and relatives in this community were divided from then on. And the young pastor, you know, of course, was horrified by this. And he um, scheduled a work day. And just in the province of God, they're working around the property of the church and accidentally unearthed an old rusty logging chain. And the Spirit of God used that as an instrument of revival and renewal in this, this local church. And, and there's stories like that in churches all over the world of how things are caused and things cause division that creates disunity within the body of Christ. Since the beginning of the Crossing Church, we've had those conversations. Let's work hard to kill the cliques. And it's been an area where the Lord has been gracious to grow us and truly help us become uh, one body made up of distinct missional communities. It's one of the dangers of a church like us who only gathers one time as one body a week and the rest of our life is spent doing life every day as the people of God in missional communities, is that we'll just be a church of distinct missional communities. We won't ever really feel like we're one. And so graciously, God's given us wisdom to fight against that and to encourage you. When you come on Sundays, don't just spend all your time talking to people you're already doing life with every day in your missional community. Talk to people that you don't normally engage with. And when we have these all-church events uh, spend time getting to know people's stories that you don't normally spend time with in your MC or your DNA groups and, 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 and work to fight against those things. And, and uh, Jordan Elder remarked um, last week, the guy who led us through a core group retreat uh, last weekend, that you know, that's one of the encouragements to us that he shared with me and some others was, was the, the bonds of love that he felt were so genuine and real in this thing called the Crossing Church. And, and that's encouraging. Because that's, that's come through a lot of work and effort that the Spirit has created and produced in us. But it, it, unity and fighting against division is a never-ending battle. Like you never can just say, whew, okay, we, we've arrived. We've got this down. We're always just one logging chain away from division and disunity and fighting. And it's what the enemy most desires, but it's also what Jesus has come to give and something he cares deeply about in his local church, as we'll see later on. The more we demonstrate a true Christ-centered, deep unity flavored by love and joy, the more we demonstrate the reality of Christ to our city and the more glory Christ receives because he is seen in our midst. 
As people interact with the Crossing Church, and they're like, man, what, why do you love each other so much? Why do you sacrifice so much each other for each other? Why do you serve each other so much? Why do you give so much of your life to each other? Well, it's because of Christ. It's because of Christ. It's more than just other things that we think might unite us. Um, Christ-centered unity characterizes a healthy church with humble and distinct leaders and members that have been and are being changed by the gospel. Let's see that today as we continue our walk through 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize But to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Father, we thank you for your word. Everything that we need to happen in us, we cannot manufacture. We cannot make happen apart from your spirit and your word. So as your people, we we just come before you confessing our total dependency on you to do in us this deep soul work that we so desperately need so that we can always be a people eager to maintain the unity of the bonds of peace that you've given us in Christ. So do that today. Come Holy Spirit and do that today for your glory for your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember Paul has planted this church in the early 50s AD, spent 18 months with these people, longer than he spent with any other church uh, that he planted other than Ephesus, where he spent three years. Paul has moved on, in fact, to Ephesus for this three-year journey with them. And while he's in Ephesus, he gets a letter from the church in Corinth about these issues and problems. And then he gets this personal visit from Chloe's household, reporting to him on the issues and problems that continue to persist. Um, there, there, were, there were issues in Corinth. This church was filled with it. This church located in a, a city on this thin strip of land between two bodies of water, this trade route that was essential to, to life in this part of the world, incredibly diverse ethnicities, economic abilities, and religious practices. Would one day this city be the largest city in Greece? This young church that's in this city is plagued with pagan, non-Jesus-loving ideas, attitudes, and practices infiltrating the church, coming into the church, not, not something they left behind to follow Jesus, but something that, hey, we follow Jesus, and now we're, we're doing all these things that we used to do as well. And so it's just creating all kinds of sin and problems within this body of believers. And so Paul's letters to them, especially 1 Corinthians, are to deal with all these things. And this letter is going to be filled with instruction on how Jesus and following Jesus changes and transforms and saturates every area of life. 
Like there's no aspect of your life that you can say, this is for me, Jesus, you can have the rest of me. None. He has your parenting, he has your marriage, he has your work, he has how you spend money, how you spend time, how you entertain yourself, your relationships, friendships, everything belongs to him. So what does it look like for the gospel to saturate all of that and change all of that? That's kind of where we're going to focus as we walk through 1 Corinthians. But even though this church is a mess, it is still a church. It is still a body of believers who have the life of Christ in them. And so before Paul begins to deal with the mess, he opens the letter with gratitude and thankfulness for what is genuine and real in them. It's not just Paul buttering them up before he says hard stuff. It's this genuine gratitude because the reality of Christ is real in them. And apart from that, it would be hopeless. Because of everything that's broken in them can't be fixed apart from the reality and presence of Jesus Christ in the gospel. So today and this year, as we wade through chapter after chapter, problem after problem, we're going to keep coming back to this, the hope of Christ. It's the same for us today. Like Whatever is broken in you, whatever is broken in us, your greatest problem, the thing you hate most about yourself, the deepest most powerful remedy is Jesus Christ and his gospel. It is the deepest and most powerful remedy for whatever is in you that is broken, that is in us that is broken. Sometimes we say, oh, that's just a church answer. You know, you ask a bunch of kids a question in church and they all say Jesus and, and we joke and laugh, ha, 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 it's a church answer. It's always right. It usually is always right. Like I had a conversation with one of my daughters recently, and she was sharing with me some things that she was struggling with. And so I'm like, okay, what's the remedy for that? Dad, I know it's Jesus. It's right. It is Jesus. It's not trite. It's not pat. It's not just the answer we always give because it's the answer we've always heard. It is, it is, it is right because it's true. It is the answer because it's true. Jesus is the solution. The gospel is the solution. And Jesus is the gospel. And so whatever is broken in us, whatever is broken in you, wherever you're struggling in this this issue of unity, our hope is in Christ to fix us. Today, maybe for you, can be the day of salvation. Like Christ can make you alive today as you turn from sin and trust in him and find peace and joy and hope in in Christ, the power to transform your life. Like not transform your circumstances. That doesn't always happen but transform you you in the midst of your circumstances. What is broken in this church, he begins to deal with. And really, you could say, like, this is the main issue plaguing the Corinthian church. Introduced in these verses, it's it's, it's the the key issue in chapters 1 through 4, for sure, but it's just going to come up again throughout this book. And the issue is unity. So let's jump in and examine uh, first what is causing this disunity. He spells it out in verse 11 through 12. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, again, Paul, remember, he's in Ephesus. He gets this letter from the church of Corinth. He writes back, but then he gets this visit. In response to the visit, he writes this letter. Maybe it's possible in the first letter he wrote or the first letter they wrote, they weren't super honest about how bad the division is. And so when Paul writes back, he doesn't really deal with it. So Chloe's like, I'm going to send some people to tell Paul how bad it really is. So this letter, he doesn't waste any time 
Thankful for all the things that are true and real about you as a church. Christ is in you. You're gifted. You have wisdom, etc. Now, here's the issue. You're divided. You're split into four different factions. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. What issues characterize each camp? Scholars have opinions because Paul didn't really identify the particulars. We can only truly speculate Paul, having been the church planter of Corinth, he shows up, he spends 18 months preaching the gospel, people are getting saved. And so, in essence, the very beginning of the church in Corinth, everyone followed Paul. So there really wasn't a Paul group because everyone was in the Paul group. So it stands to reason that the Paul group is not the group that formed first. But at some point in the early years of the church, Apollo shows up and he begins to lead and use his gifts and exert influence. Now, what do we know about Apollo? Apollos from Acts 18, he's a Jew a native of Alexandria, Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, remember they're in Corinth as well, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos is greatly respected in the New Testament in his gifting and his ability. In fact, some scholars make the case that he might be the author of Hebrews. Hebrews, this long sermon in eloquent Greek language. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Apollos from Alexandria, Egypt, one of, if not the premier learning center in the world at that time. So he's intellectual. He has a superior speaking ability. He would be quite the charismatic personality that would be very attractive in the Corinthian culture that prized charismatic speaking ability. So it seems only natural that the church planted by Paul, this guy shows up who's eloquent, smart, intellectual, and this group forms that is really drawn to Apollos. It really is elevating him. He's way better than that Paul guy who comes in weakness and trembling and fear. He's only preaching about Christ. You might call this group the intellectuals. Cephas, Peter, one of the original disciples of Jesus, had his own following. Peter visited Corinth once with his wife. We find out in chapter 9, verse 5. Known by the people, probably did some teaching while he was passing through. It's believed that with Peter's struggle with showing favoritism to the Jews that we find out in Galatians chapter 2 and the struggle in this church between the Jews and the Gentiles that the Peter faction were those who felt more strongly about adhering to the Old Testament rules and regulations. And so you might call the Peter group the legalists, the rule followers. Then you have this group that says, I follow Christ. Well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that the right group? But it seems that it is, except that Paul names them among the divisive groups. So there's some way in which they're saying, we follow Christ, that is not right. That is actually divisive, which is true. That can happen. There's some way that they're claiming Christ as their mantra, that they're getting it wrong. Now, most speculations about this group, but several authors believe this group were the super spirituals. So you have this group that's following Apollos, great. You have the group that's following Peter. Well, we're so close to Jesus, we don't need any man to lead us. We just lead, are led by Jesus. He speaks directly to us and tells us exactly what to do. We don't need human leaders. Now, we've all met people like this. And the funny thing is, what Jesus tells them to do is always exactly what they say they're supposed to do. So it's 
kind of confusing. That Jesus is never rebuking them. He's just always giving them the inside track to the right thing to do. And they're always the one who know exactly what to do because they got this direct connection to Jesus. And so within this church, you have the, 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 the intellectuals, you have the legalists, the rule followers, you have the super spirituals. And then that takes us back to the Paul group. At one time, the church consisted of only those who followed Paul, but now you've got the Apollos, the Cephas, the Jesus factions rising up. So now you have your loyalists who they step up and say, well, we're going to be loyal to the, a personality, a person with power, a person with prestige. And who's more powerful a personality in this church than Paul, the guy who planted the church? So we're, we're casting our lot with him. You, you're following these new guys? Well, we're following the original guy. So in response to these rising groups, this group rises up who follows the spiritual father of the church. And so the church is split. Now, it's not super important. We know what particular issues characterize each camp. Those ideas are plausible. They may even be accurate, but they also could be wrong. But it doesn't really matter for a couple of reasons. First, these divisions are not based on significant theological differences. For instance, the gospel is not at stake. And we know this because of Paul's exhortation in verse 10, where he tells them to not be divided, but be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This isn't what Paul says when the gospel is at stake. Paul writing to the Galatian church where the gospel was at stake. If any man preaches to you another gospel, even if you receive another gospel from an angel, let him be accursed. Stop it. Let him be damned is literally what that means in the Greek. Divide over that if the gospel is at stake. Kick them out. Paul wrote in the qualifications for pastors and elders in Titus 1.9, the pastor elder must uh, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That didn't sound very united. When the gospel is at stake, when doctrine is at stake, that's not the time to come together and be united. That's the time to divide, clarify, and purify the church. So unity isn't the be-all, end-all if essential doctrine of the gospel is at stake. Doctrine is not sacrificed on the altar of unity. If that were the essence of the division in the Corinthian church, Paul wouldn't be calling for unity, but division for the sake of purity. In fact, it's just not doctrine here that can't be sacrificed for unity, also morality. Like we'll see in chapter 5, a guy living in such immorality, Paul says even the pagans don't do that. Kick him out. Turn him over to Satan. So we don't sacrifice morality for the, the sake of unity. There is a time to fight. There is a time to divide on the key essence of the gospel, key essential doctrines of the church, or issues of morality where we're saying sin is not really sin. So in essence, whatever the precise details of what divides this church into four camps, it is something secondary or maybe even preferential that is driving this, but it's become a primary issue because the people are taking a secondary preferential issue and allowing it to divide them. It shouldn't be that way. We should, they should be able to get along even though they have difference of opinion because the, the bonds of love are more important. The unity in Christ is more important than that secondary preferential issue. But they're allowing it to become primary and divide them into four camps. And that's the second important aspect of this division. It's not being driven by the leaders, but it's being driven by the members. Paul has no beef with Apollos, Cephas, and obviously not with Christ. 
In fact, later in chapter 16, verse 12, he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the older bro- other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. If Apollos was driving this, Paul wouldn't say, Hey, I want Apollos to come. He would rebuke him, correct him, and send him away. Paul and Peter did butt heads at times, like in Galatians 2, but, but Paul mentions Cephas over in chapter 3 as someone from whom the Corinthians have benefited from in his teaching. And, and Peter and his wife had been there we think according to chapter 9, verse 5, and had blessed them with his teaching, maybe even baptized a few people. And so be warned, crossing church, the enemy will use anything and everything to drive a wedge between us. Not usually key essential doctrine or the gospel, often secondary and preferential issues to cause us to doubt the love that we share with each other. That cause us to not trust each other, that cause us to isolate each other, to not love each other and not work together. Like our greatest threat to effectiveness and health as a church is much more likely to come from within the body than without the body. The government is not about to shut us down. No outside entity or force is about to, to keep us from being the church and doing what we're called to do. It's usually not centered on core essentials of faith, it's almost always an inside job, usually on secondary issues and preference. How many churches have been torn apart because one group sided with one leader and showed that leader loyalty, more loyalty than Christ, and then another group sided with another leader just, just because they didn't want to go with that group? And it's even sadder when leaders are aware and they know and feed this because of their own ego and insecurities. That ever happens with the leader in the crossing church, please call us to account. We need the body of Christ to serve in that role. How many churches have been torn apart because of song preference or worship style preference where sometimes people can't even sing because they're so mad because they don't like the song or the worship style? How many churches have been torn apart because of differences and distinctiveness that isn't celebrated, but they're used to ostracize and isolate people? Like, I hesitate to give examples. I think we're bright enough and attuned enough to be able to do that on our own. But, but anytime opinion and point of view on secondary issues is elevated to core doctrine and anyone not holding that line is ostracized or ridiculed, we have a unity problem. We should never make other people feel that way just because they don't believe the same thing we believe about secondary or preferential issues. I've been in churches that have had disunity based on where students would attend summer camp, how students would raise funds, what kind of songs we would sing, what style of music we would sing, the volume of the microphones, how much the pastor's paid, how the pastor's wife raises her kids, Christmas decorations, who showed up on work days, on and on and on I could go. And y'all can add to that list. Strong opinions held, expressed, and used to ostracize and isolate. Instead of grace, there's grumbling. Griping, complaining, and the enemy is delighted as God's people divide into camps. And that's just church-related issue. That's a longer list of personal issues that families are going through than their, their everyday life outside of the, the Sunday gathering that they bring into the Sunday gathering or the life of the church. Families fighting over money and inheritance and land and jobs, and it just spills right into the church. Why can't we just all get along? 
Who enjoys conflict and tension and isolation and pushing people away? Who likes that? Why can't kindness and sincerity and grace and love flavor God's people more than insecurity and defensiveness? Why can't humility mark us more than skepticism? Like maybe in some churches there are people who want to fight. Maybe they see it as their spiritual gift. I've heard it said and found it true in some places that some of the meanest people in the world sit in church pews every single week. But apart from that very small minority of people, most of us don't want this. So how do we strive for what Paul exhorts the church to do in verse 10? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which, by the way, does away with baptismal regeneration, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Unity centered in and flowing from Jesus and his gospel is the key to unity that as God's people we really deep down desire, and that is possible because it's centered in Jesus and his gospel. Paul appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus in verse 10. I'm appealing to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. In biblical thought, name and person go hand in hand. So he's appealing to them in the, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like not, not only is he giving me this command as, a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ to, to tell you to do this, but he's actually providing the power in, it in order to do it. He is the reason we can do it. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and can do. This is not my opinion or preference, Paul is saying. It's based on his authority. And I, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, are sharing this with you. Be united. It's commanded because of Christ. And it's possible because of Christ. You see this even more in verse 13 with Paul's rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? No. But he's been divided and torn apart by your divisions. There is one Christ who unites all of us more than, deeper than, more long-lasting than anything else that could possibly unite us. We have to see this. We have to see our bonds in Christ as stronger, deeper, more joy-producing and long-lasting than anything else that we love to be united around. More long-lasting than a bond we share with someone because we have the same last name. Or someone who shares the same skin tone. Or someone who voted for the same political candidates we voted for. Someone who lives in the same neighborhood or works the same job or makes the same amount of money or roots for the same team. Or has the same level of education or likes the same movies, drinks the same coffee, enjoys the same food. All of these other things that we use to to build bridges and, and unite us with each other. It's fine. We do that like in conversations. You're meeting new people. Hey, what do you like? Oh, I like that too. We're like each other. Let's get along. Let's be friends. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can't stop there. 
you have to see that the bonds we have in Christ are greater than that. So that when we run across brothers and sisters in Christ who are different than us in these issues, there's still love, there's still unity, there's still grace and humility. And we're not dividing over these lesser matters. What binds us together is Christ, who Christ is, what Christ has done. And you see that in in Paul's second and third rhetorical questions. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'm not the source of the gospel. and I didn't die for you. And Paul suffered greatly for this church. Like, go read 2 Corinthians. This church broke his heart, brought him to tears. It was a struggle pastoring and, and, and leading this church. But none of his suffering for them affected who they were in Christ. None of it. Only Christ suffered on their behalf for their, for their salvation and for their transformation. As much as Paul could have demanded their allegiance, he, he knew only one could capture their hearts and make them one. Only one died for them. Only one could transform them. Only one truly loved them, like Christ. And this begins this theme that's going to run through chapter 1 and into chapter 2, the supremacy of the cross, the supremacy of preaching Christ crucified. Paul wanted that top shelf, so much so that he would say... I, I declare nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay, I'll save that for them. But it was supreme in Paul's mind, essential to who they were as a church. The simple message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's, that's kind of one of the things you've been hearing all week about Billy Graham, and you'll hear it all this week as they remember his life and celebrate the work of the Lord in his life and through him. The simple message of Jesus dying for your sins. Like it, that's what everyone says about him. Just a simple guy country dude from North Carolina who proclaimed a, a message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was watching an interview with Woody Allen back in 1969. Billy Graham did. Like 10 minute interview. With a guy who did not agree with anything Billy preached or lived. Completely at odds with him. And it was whimsical and it was funny and it was really just an amazing uh, uh, insight into how to interact with someone you completely disagree with. But Guaranteed, in that 10-minute interview, Billy's going to talk about Jesus Christ and him crucified. It doesn't matter if he's talking to one person for 10 minutes, 50,000 people for 45 minutes. He's going to get across the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We can't ever get away from that. We can't ever make our church about anything else other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is a crucified, dying Savior that is the foundation and the power for who we are. He died so we may live. We're only alive because he died and he rose from the dead. This is who we are as a church. This is our message as a church. This is the reality of what we experience. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul's saying, I didn't do that for y'all. Why are you you following me? And Apollos didn't do it and Peter didn't do it. You see this again in verse 17. After Paul dismissed the importance of who baptizes who, he says in verse 17, he hadn't been sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Baptism is important. We're Baptists. Don't get me wrong, right? But we're not converted to baptism. We're converted in the preaching of the gospel. It's the gospel that transforms our lives. And we're made alive in Christ in the proclamation of God. Baptism follows that, demonstrating to the world this reality that's happened on the inside of you. It should be done, but it's not necessary for salvation. So Paul downplayed it, which is why we do this as, as a crossing church. If you've been a part of our baptisms, you know we don't, we don't make a big deal of who baptizes who. It doesn't have to be an ordained pastor. 
It can be the person in your life that's most meaningful to you coming to faith in Christ. So a child, it could be their parent. A friend, it could be another friend who led them to faith in Christ or whoever. Because that's not a key essential doctrine of the church. You go back to verse 10. You see Paul's appeal. His plea to them for this harmonious unity. And and you wonder, wait, how much are we supposed to be on the same page? He says we would be of the same mind, have the same judgment, say the same thing. Like, to what degree? Are we, aren't we supposed to be diverse? Don't we hear y'all talking all the time about diversity and unity? Aren't we one body with many members? And so in a way, this is where we have to trust the Spirit to, to work out the specifics of what exactly this looks like for this body of believers. But whatever unity we experience has to start with Jesus Christ and Him crucified has to flow from Jesus Christ and Him crucified and the bond that we have through Christ and in Christ. Like, like there can be no other bond greater than that, and there will be no other bond that truly creates this Christ-glorifying unity other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That, that has to be the foundation and the power for everything we're going to experience as one body. And then beyond that, well, as long as it doesn't impinge on the unity we have in Christ, it can look very different and be very different, and we can be very diverse with diverse gifts within one body and one church. And whatever agreement we have, we have to be able to say it begins with Christ and not, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ in a divisive way. Christ and his gospel is a foundation for whatever unity we're going to experience that will demonstrate the reality of Christ to others. When Paul makes his appeal for unity in the the church in Ephesus, it's rooted in Christ and his gospel. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is highlighting one of the most divisive uh, groups of people that existed in the first century world, the Jew and the Gentile. It's amazing how much they hated each other, how much they couldn't even eat a meal with each other, how much they despised each other. And now you got a church made up of people who are Jewish and Gentile, now one in Christ, and there was causing issues and tension. So he goes on. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace it might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Our unity is rooted in Jesus Christ and him crucified. He himself did all the work necessary so that we could be one. And that we could have this bond that is so deep, so powerful, that nothing could separate us. And nothing could unify us more powerfully than the gospel and the personal work of Christ. If Jesus and his gospel could heal the divide between the Jew and the Gentile, if it was that powerful, then it could heal the divide caused by secondary issues and preferences. His appeal to fight for unity in Ephesians 4, 1-6, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Fight for it. Why? Because there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Unity rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This has to be believed the deepest part of our being. This is not optional. This is not trite. This is not assumed. This has to be something we come back to all the time because the enemy and our flesh are going to constantly tempt us to throw up walls with other people. Because you don't raise your kids like I raise my kids. You're doing it all wrong. You, you don't like that restaurant? What's wrong with you? you? You don't like that movie? How can you not like that movie? Snowpierce is the greatest movie that's ever been made. It's ridiculous. That's an old, old crossing story. Sorry. Again, it's rooted in the reality of who Christ is and what Christ has done. It's, it's, we have to believe in the deepest part of our being. How and why. We see pictures of how and why in this text. So, so first, unity has to be rooted and flowing from Christ crucified. Secondly, unity recognizes that we are family. Verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. Verse 11, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Christ crucified and risen, applied to our lives, takes us from being enemies of God to being adopted sons and daughters of God, which means if we both have Christ, If we both share Christ, we are sister and brother in Christ. And as Jesus pointed out several times in the Gospels, this new family he came to create is actually more powerful and supersedes the biological families into which we are born. I have a stronger, deeper bond with a brother or sister in Christ than I have with a biological family member who's not in Christ. You see this, especially if you travel to different cultures to spend time fellowshipping with brothers and sisters in Christ, hanging around people who don't look like you, who don't eat like you, don't dress like you, don't talk like you. But you, with everything in you, can call them brother and love them. And they, you just met. And there's this bond. And you know it's never going to end. Like, even if I never see this guy again, I'm going to see you one day because of Christ. And we're going to get to hang out forever and talk about how amazing the life is that Jesus gave us and continue to serve him for eternity. You can only say that about those with whom you share the bond of Christ. And if we have a bond that is that strong, that powerful, that long-lasting, like why in the world would we let secondary issues and preferences divide us? Why would we ever get so caught up in our own opinions and preferences that we would allow division and hostility to show up in these relationships that have been created and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ? Why would we give the enemy that opportunity? Brother and sister, we are family by Jesus Christ, our brother who laid down his life for us, adopted into the family of God by our Father in heaven, dearly loved children of the Father in heaven, dearly loved sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, never to be kicked out of the family because we're his. Never to be separated from the love of Christ because we're his. We're going to be spending eternity together because we're his. 
Think about the bonds of unity that we have because of Christ. Why would we let secondary preferential issues divide us and keep us from pouring out our love on each other and showing this city a unity that can only be explained by the presence of Jesus Christ and his gospel? Are we truly distinct, Crossing Church, from other families of faith, from other organizations in our city? Like sometimes I see it and I'm like, praise God, man, it's so beautiful. And then sometimes I'm around people who don't know Jesus and they have such bonds with each other that have nothing to do with Jesus. And I'm like, man, you're doing a better job of loving each other than sometimes we experience in the church. What in the world? We're family. Because of Christ, we have the power available to us to experience that as much as possible. Let's Let's press into that. How united can we be? Let's go after it. How much can we be one? Let's find out. Because of Christ and the power of the gospel in us. Lastly, so so unity is flowing from, rooted in Christ crucified. Unity that is familial in nature. And thirdly, unity flavored by humility in the midst of our distinctiveness. This is not a call for uniformity. Just as there is one God and three persons, there's unity and diversity within the Godhead. So in the body of Christ, there's unity and diversity. Verse 10 is not a call for us to make sure we're in 100% agreement 100% of the time. It's not possible. And we'll see that throughout the rest of Corinthians. We love and celebrate the diversity in the body of Christ. The more diverse we are while being united in Christ, the more we demonstrate the power of the gospel. So people can look at us one day and say, why are y'all all loving each other? We're different ethnicities, hopefully one day. We're different economic statuses. We're different uh, 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 whatever. Different sports teams, different whatever. We, we really love each other. We ride each other sometimes about stuff like that. But hopefully it's done with grace and people know it's done with grace. You know, I'm really okay that you're, if you're not an LSU fan, I don't care. I, I could switch teams. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. I could be bought. Paul demonstrates this for us in this passage, this humility. We need humility to do this. Not only he didn't take sides, but especially the side which was loyal to him. In this very human passage about him trying to remember who he baptized. Well, I baptized these people. Oh, yeah, I did also baptize these people. He could have fed his ego and encouraged the Paul faction to impose his will on the rest to get in line, toe the line or get out. Paul could have made much of who he baptized over and against those baptized by others. But you see only Christ's exalting humility coming from him. There cannot be true Jesus-glorifying, gospel-proclaiming unity in a local church apart from humility. There cannot be true Jesus-glorifying, gospel-proclaiming unity in a local church apart from humility. It is essential. And, and we're going to be camping out there a lot next week. Philippians 2 talks about it. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Unity flowing from Jesus Christ and him crucified. We share Christ, church. This is why we share communion every single week. We never want to forget this is the foundation and the source of who we are, Jesus. Who he is and what he's done. And every sin that we constantly struggle with and fight against and every sin and temptation there is to divide us can only be resolved through Jesus and the gospel. So strong it makes what we allow to divide us seem so petty and small, right? So petty and small. So we proclaim Christ because we want that message so central and visible that the glory and might of Jesus would overwhelm our temptations to divide would overwhelm our our temptations to ostracize with our preferences and opinions. Has the Lord helped us grow in this in the last four years? Absolutely. Do we have more room to grow? Yes. Is the enemy ever going to stop his attack to try and divide us? Never. He'll never stop. Will Jesus always be working in us and through us to keep us one? You better believe it. You better believe it. That's what he wants. That's what he came to give. This amazing body of believers. So as we transition to worshiping and song and communion, I want us to spend some time examining our hearts and examining our role in the unity or the disunity of the crossing. How often are our words and attitudes toward others edifying, building up, grace-giving, life-giving, and how often do they divide and tear down? And while we pray or, or while we're singing before we take communion, maybe, maybe you need to have a conversation with the Lord. Maybe you've allowed some walls to build and some bitterness or hostility or tension that you're giving refuge to about another person in our church. Or maybe somebody else in your life. And so uh, what's, what's the remedy for that? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He died for that. He died to give you life and freedom from the bondage of that sin that is eating you up to set you free from that is which is killing you from the inside let him let him do that as you turn from that sin and turn to see the beautiful glorious desirable person and work of jesus christ don't have to keep lugging that baggage around you don't have to keep walls up between you and others maybe maybe you need to have a conversation with someone maybe you only need to talk to the lord like if they don't know They don't know there's tension. They're oblivious to it. Don't go put tension in the relationship. It might be something you just need to deal with you and the Lord and let him melt that away. Because it's it's jealousy or envy or something that you're harboring against somebody and they're they're clueless. This is something that can be absolved between you and him. um, So maybe this is a time of reflection and prayer. It's for for the Lord to release you and set you free from how you feel about somebody. And and they're, they're clueless to it. Or maybe you do need to talk to somebody. Maybe during this time you realize the reason you're not a peacemaker is because you've never made peace with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so today can be the day of your salvation. I'm going to close by reading a high priestly prayer from Jesus in John chapter 17. A prayer where He's, he's praying for the, the closest disciples. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just hours away from being, or moments rather, away from being arrested. Hours away from being illegally tried. Hours away from being crucified for our sins. 
And he spends this prayer in John 17, praying for those closest to him. He's about to leave them. And then he spends a section of the prayer praying for us. Those who would believe in him because of their words. So Jesus is actually in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for, for future believers. And most of what he prays for us has to do with unity. Think about that. Moments away from suffering for our sins, when Jesus thinks about the future church, he prays for unity more than anything else. So as I read this prayer, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying this prayer over us that Jesus would do this work in us. And just listen, respond as the Holy Spirit leads you this morning. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be per- become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me.